So, um, I know we've been looking at some cheery topics recently, um, <laughs> but I suppose the idea is that we're trying to look at topics that make us think, especially about um, some of the kind of thinking and theology that maybe we've inherited over our lives. Um, we often talk about how we can end up feeling quite prickled by some of the things that we talk about. And sometimes what we recognise, me and Richard were talking about this last week, sometimes what happens is we talk about stuff that maybe we've never questioned or, or even had a chance to, to think about in a different way to what we've always been told. And that, that can be quite a process, and it, be, it can be quite a painful process sometimes when things that you have always believed, you, you are kind of put in a position where you're asking some questions about it. Um, and we're going to continue in that, um, <laughs> that um, joyful vein today by looking at the topic of, um, is God angry? Okay, is God angry? Um, Because I don't know about you, but sometimes, having grown up in the church, I can sometimes find that I look at stories that I was told as a kid and the way that the the kind of whole message of God was presented, sometimes I can't really get away from this image of the fact that God, actually, at some points in the Bible, he seems pretty angry. Seems pretty fed up or pretty frustrated with humanity and mankind. And you only have to pop pop into the Old Testament for a bit to come across some stories where you're like, man, this was pretty barbaric. This was quite tough and this is quite hard to process. And, and I don't know about you, but growing up in that kind of environment, the innocence of a child, sometimes you end up in these moments where you sat there and go, is this the good news? Is, is this good news? Because it sounds pretty heavy. It sounds pretty, pretty dark. And actually, I'm not going to go and kind of pick out all the examples um, to make you feel even worse about it, about the barbaric things that happen in the Bible. But there are so many things. Um, barbaric stories, even just um, the Israelites and what happened with them uh, being commanded by God, according to what it says in, in these accounts, by God to destroy other tribes, including women and children. And that's without us even getting onto the whole idea of the flood, <laughs> where God actually looked at the whole of humanity, according to what it says in the scriptures, uh, he looks at the whole of humanity and just thought, this isn't working. So the easiest thing is just to wipe everyone out and start again with a boat full of people. These kind of things, like we are so far away from that, it's so distant from our reality that it's easy to almost look at them as fairy tales and kind of um, put ourselves in a comfortable position where we don't really think about it because um, we don't really talk about that because that seems a bit too hard. And, And I think my experience, if I'm really honest, is growing up through church, it was never an option to question or talk about any of those kind of difficult or barbaric stories. I remember being in a baptism service um, and it was one of those classic environments where someone's being baptised, invited all their family and friends along, some who'd never been to church. And the person who was doing the talk that Sunday, in their great wisdom, decided to talk about um, when the Red Sea um, parted and uh, all of the, um, and the Israelites managed to get through and then um, the people who were chasing them all got obliterated as the waters closed and everyone died. Um, now, they thought it was this great story of victory to share on a baptism, but I remember someone who was a visitor coming up going, that is an insanely awful story, that God would just wipe out all of these people in a river 
Um, and, like, and, that, and, and that's meant to be good news, is it? And you kind of sit there and go, sometimes we become so indoctrinated into the comfort of a system that we don't see some of the harsh reality of what is going on in some, in some of the stories. Um, and I think, obviously, as, as I talk this morning, we'll, we'll kind of put into play some of the things we've looked at over the last few weeks and understanding of who was telling the story, what, what was the culture at the time. All those kind of things are important to remember. But I think if we're really honest about it, and maybe this is just my own personal therapy, um, but if we're really honest about it, sometimes we can read parts of the Bible and it doesn't feel like it's this great, wonderful, easy story that's really palatable for everyone. Sometimes the image of God that we're presented can seem pretty harsh and can seem um, pretty hard to process. So God seemed pretty angry back then. Angry enough to wipe out and destroy whole groups of humans for different reasons at different times. And we're told, aren't we, throughout um, kind of history and, and by Christians all the time, we're told that God never changes. Right? This is a word, a phrase that's phrased out there. The great thing with God is he never changes. Now, if you want to be kind of sceptical or critical, you can look at it and go, OK, so if God never changes, what on earth was going on back in those days? when people were getting wiped out for not doing the right thing or not being in the right group or behaving poorly. Um, and the question is, and I suppose I'm just trying to be really honest with us here and think if anyone in the room's got doubts, I'm trying to go, look, we all can acknowledge some of these difficult things. If we're told that God never changes, is he still the same as what we read about? Is he still the same person as what we read about in those kind of stories and those kind of accounts? And to me, it doesn't feel right to decide that God has just changed over time. So what could have happened? What I want to do is read a few excerpts from a book that I read uh, a few months ago. It's called uh, Sin is in the Hands of a Loving God by a guy called um, Brian Zand. Um, I'm going to read a couple of little extracts out because I really like the way he explains some of this stuff. He's talking about this idea of God changing. This is what he says. When we watch the sunrise and sunset, it certainly appears that the sun is moving, when in fact it is the earth that is rotating. The apparent movement of the sun is an illusion created by our own movement. Likewise, if it appears that God is changing over time, it is in fact we who are changing. We mutate, we grow, we change, but God does not. And I think it's important to kind of try and get a bit of a handle on, on that as a concept. That actually, and we talked about this, kind of touched on this over the last few weeks, that, that humanity changes. Uh, our moral kind of compass and understanding evolves over time the more that life goes on. And I believe when I look at kind of the stories of the Bible and God and, and what he's doing, I believe that it's him who's pushing humanity forward, who's making us think differently, who's causing us to, um, to evolve our thinking and become um, more aware of how do we best treat other human beings. And I think um, history has shown that as God has shoved us at times through different points. And remember what we said uh, about the Bible last week when we looked at it. We talked about how it's a book, uh, a library that is shaped by the understanding of the writers at that time. 
So we have to jump back into their world to understand what were they talking about? What was their reality? How did it work? Who did they think God was? What were they um, influenced by at the time in order to understand the significance of the story? And we talked about Israel, didn't we? And a lot of the stuff in the Old Testament is centred around Israel being this key place where God, um, God's people are and him wanting to help them and protect them. The books that were written by the Israelites uh, have got kind of um, a massive amount of influence of their reality on them. So we talked about how Israel was a small country always in danger of invasion and attack. They were flanked by Babylon and Assyria, two powerhouses who were constantly threatening to overtake them and, and invade them. So their life was one of fear and, and worry. They were... Um, they were worried about constantly being oppressed and their experience as a nation shaped the way that they saw everything. So there was a constant emphasis in their own thinking and their own way of communicating, constant emphasis on being rescued, on their enemies being destroyed by God. Um, and this is the language of a nation who were continually in fear um, and were suffering. So when they write their accounts, that's the kind of language that you get. That's the kind of words that you get. They're presenting, this is my reality and this is what it looks like. Um, and, and also, the view of God at the time, their view of God at the time, in that kind of moment in history, was very influenced by Greek mythology. So they were looking at characters like Zeus and Jupiter and all these warrior gods who would send lightning bolts down on people to destroy them and would um, send good weather when, um, when they were pleased with people and bad weather when they weren't. So crops were good if you were kind of keeping the gods happy and they were bad if you weren't. This is the kind of view that people had of this is the way that gods worked. So when you put all of this stuff together... You can see why people wrote in the way that they did, that they were constantly writing a narrative that said, we need to be rescued. God needs to come through, come through for us and destroy our enemies because we're the chosen ones. Everyone else is, is, not, um, is, is not on our side. So you can see why their reality completely um, shaped um, the way they thought about stuff. Next little section I want to read uh, says this. It says this, even a casual reader of the Bible notices that between the alleged divine endorsement of genocide in the conquest of Canaan and Jesus' call for love of enemies in his Sermon on the Mount, something has clearly changed. What has changed is not God, but the degree to which humanity has attained an understanding of the true nature of God. The Bible is not the perfect revelation of God, Jesus is. Jesus is the only perfect theology. Perfect theology is not a system of theology. Perfect theology is a person. Perfect theology is not found in abstract thought. Perfect theology is found in the incarnation. Perfect theology is not a book. Perfect theology is the life that Jesus lived. What the Bible does infallibly and inherently is point us to Jesus, just like John the Baptist did. So it's that point, again, that we've touched on a few times, that the true revelation of God, the image of God that actually we want to kind of lean on most, even when we read stories in the Bible that present him in a certain way, the safest and kind of clearest image of who God is, is in that person of Jesus. And I remember, uh, I read a, I'm reading a book at the minute, um, and um, one of the interesting things it says in there is that, 
when we've grown up with a, a kind of faith and a view of God and this interest in, in having a relationship with God, when we come across the person of Jesus, we can fall into this trap of saying, OK, well, when we look at Jesus, the way we understand it is Jesus is like God. And that's the important thing. We look at Jesus and go, Jesus is like God. But actually, this book turns around and says, well, do you know what? We need to flip that on its head. On its head. And rather than choose to kind of understand Jesus through our preconceived idea of who God is and how he works, we need to look at it the other way around and say that, Je- um, that God is like Jesus. And that we look at Jesus first and that's the image that shapes who God is. So even preconceived ideas that we get from reading Old Testament stuff and we think, no, I need to remain loyal to that kind of view of who God is. Actually, when we encounter Jesus, he's the clearer picture. So Jesus needs to influence and shape those old images because that's the most consistent way of looking at it. So when we have that moment of confusion going, what on earth is going on in the Bible? In those barbaric, they said that God wanted to do this. Jesus trumps that by looking at the way he operated and the way he did his life. One last section from this book. Completely lost my page. Okay, so it says here, in his gospel, Luke tells us that after Jesus had been baptised by John in the Jordan and completed his 40 days of prayer and fasting in the wilderness, Jesus returned to Galilee to begin his ministry. After teaching and healing in villages throughout Galilee, Jesus finally returned to Nazareth. Jesus' newfound fame had preceded him and there was tremendous anticipation surrounding his homecoming. Nazareth was ready to embrace Jesus as their hometown hero. On the Sabbath, Jesus went to the synagogue and was invited to read from the scriptures. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Did you catch what happened? Do you see what Jesus did? While reading from the familiar passage of Isaiah 61, Jesus stopped mid-sentence and rolled up the scroll. It would be like someone singing the American national anthem and ending with, Oh, the land of the free. Everyone would be waiting for and the home of the brave. Jesus didn't finish the line. Jesus omitted the bit about the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus edited Isaiah like this to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Cut out the bit and the day of vengeance of our God. In announcing that God's jubilee of liberation, amnesty and pardon was, was arriving with what he was doing, Jesus omitted any reference to God exacting vengeance on Israel's enemies. In claiming that Isaiah's prophecy had been fulfilled in their hearing, Jesus is claiming to the jubilee, in, to be jubilee in person. But the scandalous suggestion is that, his, is that this jubilee is to be for everybody even Israel's enemy, uh, enemies. Jesus had edited out vengeance, and this gives us a key to how Jesus read the Old Testament. So it's interesting, isn't it? I don't think any of us would particularly notice that 
when that part of the Bible is retold um, in, the, in the Gospels, as Jesus is in this moment, that he would admit there's not a big deal made of it in the passage. But the reality is Jesus chose to admit part of this old part of Isaiah, which justified God destroying enemies, the vengeance of God being exacted upon people. And for Jesus to turn around and admit that line and sit down, you imagine the controversy in that room. People would have known that scripture and waited for that final line. But Jesus chose to admit it, sat down and, and basically ushered in a new way of thinking. And that's a profound kind of uh, insight into who Jesus was and what was important. That the idea of vengeance and, and um, punishment and retribution being needed and a part of who God was, he reset the balance for that. And the thing is, it's not just in that moment that we see um, the passion of Jesus for, for peace and for, uh, for kind of getting rid of this need for vengeance. We see it in the way that he responds, and there's an incredibly powerful one um, through times throughout the Bible where he does it. How does Jesus respond in times of confrontation? Well, if we quickly jump to Luke, um, where's my Bible? There it is. Uh, Luke, uh, where is it? Luke uh, 22, 47 to 51. I'm going to read it from the message. Um, and it says this, um, no sooner were the words out of his mouth uh, than a crowd showed up. Judas, uh, the one from the twelve in the lead, he came right up to Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said, Judas, you would betray the Son of Man with a kiss. When those with him saw what was happening, they said, Master, shall we fight? One of them took a swing at the chief priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Jesus said, let them be, even in this. Then touching the servant's ear, he healed them. So Jesus, in a moment of confrontation where, where kind of violence and vengeance and retribution uh, would have been understandable, someone who just betrayed him and would basically signed his death warrant in that moment, Jesus decides not only to tell his, uh, tell his disciples not to fight back, not to want to avenge what Judas has just done, he actually steps in and heals someone in that moment. But the biggest sign of how Jesus responded to this stuff is in the crucifixion. And we know a lot about God from that, because if, if God was the lightning bolt throwing Zeus character, then that moment of the crucifixion, as Jesus was dying on the cross, that would have been the ultimate moment for God to show his power. To, to show um, that actually, when you try and kill my son, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you all back. If it had been like a Marvel version, there would have been a completely different scenario. It would have been this moment where God rises up and wipes out everyone who was trying to kill his son. That would have been the Hollywood ending, wouldn't it? But that's not what happens in that story. Um, we can imagine that that would be how it could play out in the sensational, like, sensationalised version. Um, but could the people in that moment there be doing anything worse they were trying to kill the son of God surely in a moment in history that would tip the balance if there's ever going to be anything that was going to make God go I'm going to show my power I'm going to wipe everyone out which is the God of the Old Testament that were presented surely that would be the moment where we'd see it but what does Jesus do he's the image of God in that moment as he's beaten mocked abused rejected he doesn't call for God to punish them and wipe them out. Instead, he says this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. 
That's what he says in that moment. And what were they trying to do? They were trying to kill the Son of God. They couldn't have really come up with anything worse to do in that moment. But Jesus' response is forgiveness. And that is the image that we need to concentrate on. A God who is not interested in retribution or revenge, but in restoration, in making things right again. And we get the greatest example of that on the cross in that moment. We can understand how he would have said enough is enough. Don't you, don't, don't you dare treat my son in this way. But instead, he chooses to forgive and lets that whole thing roll out. One other thing I just want to kind of throw in there, because sometimes when we talk about the subject of God being angry, people use this word wrath. Okay, and we look at times where the word wrath is used and um, the, the wrath of God and, and this sense that when we, when we mention that word, it's like the epitome of absolute anger and disgust. And it's like this thing that's bubbling underneath and it's about to expose, uh, explode. And that God's, God's don't ever incur God's wrath with the way that you behave. Uh, I heard a really interesting talk a couple of years ago where Steve Chalk was chatting with um, a guy called Jonathan Sachs, who was the head of the Jewish church in the UK at the time. And they were talking about how um, Ju- uh, Judaism and Christianity think quite differently, and, uh, but there's lots of things that join well together. And Jonathan Sachs said a really interesting point. He said, I just wish sometimes that Christians would come to us to ask us about certain things and what they mean and the significance of them. Because we've studied all of this stuff. We've studied all of these scriptures. And we have a depth of knowledge and understanding about these words and, and, uh, and explanations that maybe sometimes you don't always get the full picture on. And he talked about this word uh, wrath. And he said, the problem is people think that wrath, wrath means anger. But actually, he said, a better interpretation of the word wrath is anguish. And when we throw that in and talk about God's wrath, and we, we, t- we decide that it's not talking about anger bubbling underneath, about to explode, that instead it's God's kind of heart cry, God's anguish into situations, suddenly that whole word and every context that is mentioned in takes on a completely different understanding, a different meaning, because the idea that God wouldn't be... Um, about to kind of explode with anger, but instead be heartbroken with anguish in a situation. We get it. That makes more sense in the person that we are trying to understand who is God. It makes more sense that he'd be someone who's full of anguish than someone who's full of anger. So I'm throwing that in there as an extra reinforcer to make us think, when we think about this idea of, is God angry? Um... Actually, let's look at all of these different things, all of these different um, these words and these scenarios, this person of Jesus, and try and put it all together to say, I think this gives us a more realistic image of who God actually is. So is God angry? I don't think that's who he is. We're told that he is love. And I think if we put everything through that filter, through the person of Jesus, and try and expand our understanding then we begin to see a bit of a different picture of who he is. So remember to view those Old Testament stories through the eyes and understanding of the people at the time. They saw the world differently. They saw uh, culture and society differently. They saw people uh, differently. Um, they saw God differently. Understand uh, why they were writing the way that they did. And understand that God's not changed 
throughout history, but our understanding of who he is has. So we don't need to discard those stories. We just need to see them in the context of when they were written and begin to kind of pick through that and say, well, who was God in that moment? Um, and, and see that the, the kind of loving God who, who um, is interested in everyone was there all along. So I'm going to pray. And then I've just got two questions that we'll throw up on the screen. And uh, you can just have a little chat about it with the people that you sat with. Um, so let me just pray. Father God, um, I pray as we look at this stuff that you would really be with us as we think about it. Sometimes there'll be um, thoughts that we have or experiences that we recall that maybe might cause us to feel quite prickled and uneasy about these kind of things. But God, I just pray that as our ultimate aim is just to try and find a greater understanding of who you are, God, I pray that you just be really with us in our thoughts, especially as we go away from today and try and um, ponder and wonder about these different things. Maybe uh, things that we've heard or things that we've said or stories that we've read uh, will come to mind this week. I pray as we process this stuff that you just be so present and with us. And, and God, we just want to know you more. And uh, I just pray that you'd really help us as we, as we pursue you this week and try and work that stuff out for ourselves. Amen. So the two questions are... Um, First one, has the image of an angry God had much impact on your understanding of how everything works? Okay. Uh, second question is, what do you see as some of the main differences between Jesus and the Old Testament view of God? Okay. Um, I'm not bothered if you just think, sack off the questions, let's talk about um, something else. You can do that if you want. Um, if you do want to talk about this, um, then, um, then those are two questions. I've been really prepared. I've already put them. Uh, I've already written them up, so you haven't got to wait. Um, just wait. All we've got to wait for is Mike to casually make his way <laughs> over. Um, those are the two questions. Uh, have a think about it. You talk, talk for five minutes, ten minutes, whatever you want, and then at some point we'll be interrupted by the rabble from the other room. Um, but I hope that made sense. Um, if, you, if anyone kind of is listening to this stuff and going, man, this, is, this feels like a lot or it feels like a lot to process, then feel free to get in touch. I'm sure there's many of us who would want to chat about this further. And equally, we don't, we don't do anything in the week. We don't do additional things where people can, can meet up to talk about this kind of stuff. But if you want those kind of things, and I really encourage you, if you have great discussions this morning or other people that you know quite well here that you'd love to to kind of chat about this stuff a bit more, arrange to go for a coffee or have a meal together or go out for a walk with someone if you do want to talk about this. And just be honest, because we've made it really clear, this isn't a place of um, absolute definite truth that we all believe one thing exactly the same. Stuff can be unresolved, stuff can be discussed, stuff, people can have different opinions. So feel free to kind of be flexible in the way that you approach all this kind of stuff. So that's enough of me prattling on. Um, get chatting and... Uh, James, I'll come sit with you because you look a bit lonely over there. <laughs>